From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Even if we were to stop all carbon emissions right here, right now, we would still have a problem. Because the carbon that humans have released into the atmosphere over the past century is going to keep circulating for a very long time to come. So it's going to continue its contribution to the greenhouse effect, which is responsible for climate warming. We still haven't figured out a great way to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And among those who are studying this part of mitigating global warming, there's a growing consensus that it's not just going to be one thing. It's going to have to be a lot of different things working in concert and as quickly as possible over the coming decades to pull excess carbon from our atmosphere. Some of this will likely be technological, big machines that filter carbon dioxide from the air and condense it for storage deep underground, or some have suggested deep under the ocean. But many scientists have pointed out that the best carbon capture solutions are those that nature has already perfected over hundreds of millions of years of evolution, but that humans have interfered with over the past couple hundred years. The one that might be coming to your mind right now is trees, which consume carbon, store it in their heartwood, and hold it there for, in some cases, thousands of years. If we were to stabilize global deforestation, or better yet, reverse it, we could put this natural carbon sink back into play in a major way. But here's an idea that you might not have thought of. Why not let whales do their part? The largest animals on Earth can weigh up to 150 tons. They can live more than 100 years. And over those lifetimes, they consume a lot of food, which is made up of a lot of carbon, which is stored in their bodies. And then when they die, sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And there, under deep ocean pressures, it gets trapped. This process, which is part of what is called the biological carbon pump, is at the center of a new study by a team of researchers led by Heidi Pearson. Pearson is an associate professor of marine biology at the University of Alaska Southeast, where her research is focused on understanding the role of marine mammals in maintaining healthy ecosystems. Heidi Pearson, welcome. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for that lovely introduction and happy to be on the show. Heidi, you grew up in Iowa, which is pretty close to as far away from an ocean as one can get while still living in the United States. I'm interested in this. The high school you attended was sort of special relative to what you eventually ended up doing with your life. Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, you've done your homework figuring out that I am from the heartland. Yes. I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, and I was fortunate enough to attend what we call a magnet school in downtown Des Moines for my junior and senior year of high school. And I took a marine biology class there. And there was an amazing teacher, uh, Dr. Karen Murphy, who built up this class. And all of us students had our own saltwater aquarium to take care of. And then the, the main part of the class was we got certified in scuba diving. And we did our training in a pool. And then our open water training, so to speak, was in this rock quarry where we went in October in Iowa, and it was awful. I mean, it was cold. You couldn't see hardly the hand in front of your face, um, but we did it. We got scuba certified, and then over spring break, we rode on literally yellow school buses, a 24-hour nonstop trip from Des Moines 
to the Florida coast and we went scuba diving, snorkeling, sailing. We swam with the manatees. And that was really a pivotal point for me, you know, as a 16 year old from Iowa to experience all of that. And then that, of course, set the stage for my career. And you're like, I'm going to be a scientist. This is it. That, that, yes, that was one of two pieces of, you know, kind of what I consider set me on my career trajectory. The other pivotal point occurred um, about a year before that. I was 15 and I went on a month long trip to East Africa with a small group. And I was able to see the mountain gorillas in what was then Zaire. It's now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I spent an hour with these amazing creatures and one of them, a juvenile, walked across my feet as we were observing, hanging back. You know, there's there's strict rules you're supposed to follow because we're there on their terms. But this juvenile just walked across my feet at one point during the encounter, um, just like I was a treat, like I wasn't even there. And that was just amazing and really made me think about I, I want to spend my life working with with animals in some form and also helping in their conservation. So eventually you end up at graduate school at Texas A&M and you while you were there, you were spending quite a bit of your time doing research in global health psychology and specifically in women's health. And this included some of your early co-authored publications on subjects like the HPV vaccine and pap smear test in the developing world. And then at the same time, you were also working on sea otter identification and dolphin sociology. This must have been a really crazy time in your life. <laughs> it was. I mean, I've always considered myself a multitasker. I'm also fascinated by a lot of different things. And my work at the University of Texas Medical Branch, to be honest, it started out as a, a part-time job, a way to earn more money. Uh, when I was uh, an undergrad at Duke University, I had a work-study position at the Duke University Medical Center in a psychiatry lab. And then during grad school, I was able to get a part-time job working with a health psychologist. But that was a really pivotal experience for me because I was able to learn a lot about the scientific process you know, grant writing, writing papers, analyzing data, that even though the field was totally separate, you know, women's health is totally different than, like you say, sea otter nose identification and dusky dolphin behavior, but fundamental scientific processes transcend disciplines. And were you feeling at that point ever pulled in a different direction by that other interest and those other experiences, or were you still pretty locked on to becoming a biologist? I was pulled at times. I worked very closely with Dr. Carmen Radecki Breitkopf, and she was a, just as much of a mentor to me as my graduate school, school mentor, and I know she would have loved to have me as a, a PhD student. And then at one point, I was recruited by a gynecologic oncologist at MD Anderson in Houston to work, um, to get a prestigious summer internship working on that cervical cancer vaccine study that you mentioned. And I, I was just offered it outright, which at the time I didn't realize how big of a deal it was, but I turned it down because I was headed to the field in New Zealand, you know, that summer to work with the dusky dolphins. But, you know, from time to time, I did think about it, but my, my heart and my passion has always been with wildlife and conservation 
but that experience at UTMB did make me realize that, you know, we have to take care of the people as well as the animals to have a healthy planet overall. You mentioned this sea otter identification study and you said, you know, sea otter nose identification. And I could just hear, I could just hear people's eyes rolling in the back of their head, which is like, why do we need to study sea otter noses? My God. But, but this is actually really interesting because you were using the noses for a very specific purpose. Can you talk about that? So it's really important in studies of animals to be able to recognize individuals, just like we recognize people, you know, based on our faces or our fingerprints. And finding that natural mark to identify animals is really important because if we can understand animals at the level of the individual, we just know so much more and uh, at, at many biological and conservation levels. And it's also really a really good method because it's non-invasive. We don't have to capture these animals and put our own human tags on them. We just work with what they have already. And for sea otters, we realize that individuals get different scars on their noses, and we could use those as essentially a fingerprint to study animals through time at the individual level. Otters also play this really important role in a process called trophic cascade carbon. Can you talk about that? That is a classic ecological theory. And the way this works is that you have a system that has a lot of sea otters in it. And sea otters are voracious predators. They eat about 25% of their body weight in food each day. Wait, they can't be. They're so cute and lovable. How can they be voracious predators? (laughs) Oh my gosh, you do not want to get close to a sea otter. They are vicious. Yes, looks are deceiving for sure. And they eat a lot. And one of their favorite foods are sea urchins. Sea urchins, in turn, love to munch down kelp forests and other vegetation. So if you have an ecosystem with a lot of sea otters, they are suppressing the sea urchin population, meaning these sea sea urchins are not mowing down these kelp forests, and then we have healthy kelp forests. So that's what's considered the healthy natural state. On the flip side, if you have an ecosystem where sea otter populations are reduced or absent, then the sea urchins can take over and they will create what are called urchin barrens because they just eat so much of the kelp forest. And then you have an unhealthy ecosystem uh, because the kelp forests are really important in maintaining biodiversity overall in coastal ecosystems. And so it's this trophic cascade because you have, uh, you know, the top of the, the food web here, the sea otters are causing this cascade of events down the food web. And this this is one of quite a few mechanisms through which marine vertebrates of all kinds play roles in the oceanic carbon cycle, which is something that you really got focused on in the late 2010s as part of an international research group that was trying to identify these sorts of processes that move carbon from one place to another at, at various levels in our oceans. And this this is how we get to the subject of the whale pump, which is this long-term capture and sequestration process that whales contribute to during their lives and then long after their deaths. but. This is also where we should probably discuss whale populations, because 
these animals don't exist in the numbers that they once did in our oceans. Some whale populations, such as the Southern Ocean blue whale, for example, their current population is 1% of what it was before heavy exploitation. And that was due to large-scale industrial whaling that occurred in the 20th century and prior to that. And this hunting of, of whales for their meat, their blubber, their oil, other products has suppressed some populations quite a lot. And many populations still today, decades after the ending of large-scale commercial whaling, still have not recovered. What your research has suggested is that if they could, if they could recover these populations, they could play a bit of a role in carbon capture and sequestration. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. And you've done a great job already of summarizing some of these carbon pathways that whales are involved in. And our team splits these carbon pathways into the direct pathway and then the indirect pathway. And so I can go through the direct pathway first because we understand that pathway better and it's, it's easier to understand overall. And so that basically means that whales are directly storing carbon in their body. So just like you and me, whales are made up of a lot of carbon that, as you mentioned in your intro, they get from their food. And because they are so massive, you know, they are the largest animals to ever live, even including the dinosaurs. They are massive and they can live a long time. Bowhead whales, for example, can live over 200 years. So they just have a lot of potential to store a lot of carbon for a long period of time. And then when they die, these carcasses are heavy and most of them sink. And when they sink, especially to the deep sea floor, that carbon is essentially going to be out of contact with the atmosphere for thousands of years, maybe longer. And that's what we call carbon sequestration. If we can get that carbon out of the atmosphere and to the deep sea floor for more than 100 years, then that's a good thing for the climate. And we should probably make something clear here. If whale numbers were to rebound, that's not going to fix climate change, right? I mean, that itself is not enough, but it, it would take a little bite. Right. It's one small part of the bigger picture that has to happen to combat climate change. But you and your group have suggested that this direct way that whales sequester carbon, it may be just the most obvious way that large marine animals impact the carbon cycle, but there are also a lot of indirect ways, some of which we're starting to know about and some of which we know exist, but we don't know what they are yet, right? Right. So these direct pathways, as I said, we have higher scientific confidence in them. But in the scheme of things, it's a very, very, very small piece of the overall carbon budget. So if we move to these indirect pathways, we have less scientific confidence and understanding in these pathways, but we believe there is bigger potential for carbon capture, storage, and possibly sequestration. So these indirect pathways essentially involve whales fertilizing the surface of the ocean with their byproducts, 
So things that they release from their body like poop or urine or placentas in the case of breeding females, even slough skin. And we know for some of these byproducts that they are rich in what are called limiting nutrients. So these are nutrients that are usually present in small amounts in the surface ocean. They are limiting, they're limiting phytoplankton growth. But when we have an influx of these nutrients, they can then be taken up by phytoplankton, cause phytoplankton to grow. And that does two things. One is it spurs the bottom of the food web because from phytoplankton, we have zooplankton like krill feeding on the phytoplankton. And then we can have fish feeding on the, the krill and then whales feeding on the fish. The other thing, of course, is that phytoplankton are photosynthetic like like trees, like plants on land. And so they are absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere. And so some of that additional CO2 that's absorbed by the phytoplankton can then be sequestered in the deep sea. But there's lots of unknowns in each step of that pathway that I just described. Is that a big part of the next part of your career as a researcher, trying to untangle these indirect connections that are impacting carbon in in the ocean? It is. And our team is currently developing a proposal to try to get some empirical data to better understand some of those indirect pathways. And it's not just the impact on carbon that we're looking at. We're also looking at the impact on nutrient cycling and then food web dynamics overall. Because even if at the end of the day, we find that whales have still have a pretty small impact on the carbon cycle. We know that they still have benefits for the ecosystem in terms of making it more productive overall. And the, the great irony of this, and you mentioned this earlier, is these are the largest organisms, the largest animals to ever live on our planet, including the dinosaurs hundreds of millions of years ago. Which, by the way, I think is pretty cool that we just happen to be here at the same time that they're here. Isn't that awesome? Yes, I never thought of that. Gosh, how lucky are we? That's, we're that's we're super lucky. But but we also still know so very little about these very big animals. Yes, that is true. You know, they they're hard to study. They are wide ranging, highly migratory. They spend a lot of their time in the open ocean. But we are fortunate that they are mammals. They have to come to the air to breathe. So we can get more of a glimpse of their life because they are tied to the surface. And that's when we can do things like take pictures of their tails or their flukes to determine who they are as individuals. We can put tags on them. You know, We can do other types of things to try to understand them better as they are tied to the surface to some extent. Long term, are you looking at all whales? Are you going to start with sperm whales and blue whales and move from there? Like, Because ultimately, we're not just talking about one species, right? We're talking about dozens and dozens of species. Yes. And the scale and the scope can quickly get very unwieldy. And so we are starting by using species that are more tractable, and logistically easier to work with. And so one of the species we've been working with for quite some time now are humpback whales because they occur here, right where I am in Juneau, Alaska. And they are a great model species, so to speak, because they're migratory and they feed at different depths. And so we're definitely targeting humpback whales. And 
we are starting, as I said, to look for uh, some work with sperm whales as well. But at the end of the day, we're never going to be able to study every species of baleen whale, let alone all cetaceans in general, meaning also dolphins and porpoise. And so we're hoping to use some of these model species like the humpback, hopefully the, the sperm whale, to answer these questions. And then we can, we can apply it to these other species through modeling and some other techniques without having to actually collect data on every single species. You mentioned the humpbacks being right there in Juneau. And this is this true? You can actually see whales from the window of your office there? Yes, I am looking out right now, and I saw a little harbor seal swimming just at the start of our interview. And I have a log that I keep in my office of when I see whales. I see killer whales from my window, and I see humpback whales. And yes, so it's very, very special to be able to look out of my office and literally see my study species. You have the coolest office ever. Like when they brought you up to, I assume they brought you up to Alaska for like a, a tour of the campus when you were considering going to work there. Right. Pretty much, I'm, I'm assuming all they had to do was show you the office, right? <laughs> well, at the time, actually, this building was under construction. But in my negotiations, actually, I did request that I have an office <laughs> in the new building with a view. And and I got it. <laughs> you mentioned, you know, the the proximity to humpbacks. Um, one of the things that humpbacks are very famous for is being so gosh darn photogenic and available for whale watchers. And some of your prior research has been about the interaction between whales and whale watching. But this makes them really a really profoundly great species because you can put citizens to work as scientists uh, through these whale watching endeavors, right? Yes. And there's a great data platform that has emerged in recent years called happywhale.com. And it has really transformed humpback whale research and citizen science data as well, because what happy whale does is a couple things. One is it has this automated matching algorithm. So you can submit your images to the Happy Whale platform and it will automatically identify your whale. So per, for perspective, before Happy Whale, I would have a small army of at least six interns a year working year round to ID my humpback whale flukes. Now we have this automated system and it's pretty much instantaneous. And then relative to this idea of the movement of carbon, what that's allowing us to have is a better idea of where these pathways are that are moving these animals from one place to another at different times of the year, right? Yes, absolutely. Because the alternative to using photo ID and these collective research platforms is to put tags on whales, which is very expensive tags don't always last that long and tags the satellite tags that would give you that tracking information are invasive as well and so photo id again through this happy whale platform has really transformed how we can study and understand these whales so i know when you got to see your first manatee uh when did you get to see your first whale oh that's a fun story. That was gray whales off the coast of Oregon. 
and I was in high school. I was maybe 16 or so. And my dad, my sister, and I went on a whale watch off the Oregon coast. And of course, it was, you know, cloudy, probably kind of cool and, and misty. And we, I didn't, I don't think I even knew what species we were after, but we came upon a gray whale and it was the stinkiest thing ever. I don't know if you've ever smelled gray whale blow or breath, but it is stinky. And it's because they feed on the bottom. They feed in the sediment. And um, I just remember that smell like, whoa, this animal is stinky. And I wouldn't say that was necessarily my my hook <laughs> to, <laughs> to studying whales um, because I initially got interested in marine mammal science through my interest in small cetaceans like dolphins in particular. And I was lucky enough to be able to study dolphins for my PhD, as we mentioned. That's Heidi Pearson. She's an associate professor of marine biology at the University of Alaska Southeast. And her team's recent paper in the journal Trends in Ecology and Evolution investigates the possibility that whale recovery could play a role in the removal of circulating carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. Heidi Pearson, thank you. Thank you so much, Matthew. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday on UPR and Thursdays and Sundays on KCPW. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from public radio listeners like you. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.